Hello, and thanks for joining us for this bonus episode, where I'm delighted to be joined by Anti-Slavery International to discuss the link between ESG and modern slavery. I'm Anna-Marie Slot, Ashurst's Global ESG and Sustainability Partner, and this is ESG Matters at Ashurst. In terms of some of the work that I've been um, doing whilst I've been here, for the business and human rights team, I've been looking at the mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence law and the um, anal- analysing responses to the European Commission's consultation on this to work out how businesses feel about this proposed new law. I've examined various factors such as the inclusion of SMEs, liability and supply chain coverage. Um, in terms of linking to ESG, it's not only moral reasons for um, businesses undertaking such due diligence, but there are also ESG risks if they are left unmanaged and that could later lead to negative consequences for the company. For instance, damage to the reputation and public and investor pressure, and maybe even regulatory and legal consequences. Due diligence helps companies to thoroughly assess these ESG risks and impacts to avoid these unwanted consequences, which makes it good for business. Some have noted that there's also been a bigger focus on the E element in terms of the environment rather than the S element in terms of social. So this law is hoped to increase the focus on that S element so that it is at the same level as the E. There's also increasing recognition of the interlinkages between environmental and social impact. There's increasing evidence suggesting links between climate change and modern slavery, which leads me to mention the other main project that I've been working on. So I've supported Fran Witt, who's the climate change and modern slavery advisor at Anti-Slavery International, with organising the report launch for the Anti-Slavery and IIED report on climate-induced migration and modern slavery. This event amplified the voices of partners in the grassroots organisations in Ghana and Bangladesh who outlined the challenges faced by their communities. I would like to now pass on to Fran to discuss the report in more detail. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Isabella. Uh, and just can I just quickly say from our part, it's just so thrilling to have you knowing that you're going to join the firm as an expert and, you know, to, to you know, to come in as an ambassador for um, the fight against slavery is just fantastic. So we can learn from you and I'm just really thrilled that you'll be joining us next year. Um, so now, yeah, to introduce Fran, um, we'd love you, Fran and Anna-Marie, well, and everybody really, to join in. I mean, I was just gonna throw out a first question and just to say to everybody, do type in questions and we can take them probably at the end, but if anything comes in, and I think we can um, slip it in while they're having a conversation, I will do. Um, but yeah, my first question really is to everyone, what is, it, what is ESG to you and what, why is it important? Fran, I'm going to pick on you. Yes. Um, well, I think um, as Adela was talking, I think you know, she, she summed it up really well. Um, I think... ESG is an absolutely fundamental part of responsible business practice in the sense that not only does it protect the social and environmental um, governance of an organisation, but it also protects the workers and the environment in which those operations are taking place. And hopefully not only in the business itself, but throughout the supply chains. And so ultimately, from our perspective, it's about... um, protecting people from extreme forms of exploitation, um, which can manifest in modern slavery, uh, forced labor or bonded labor, um, and also other forms of exploitation. Um, So I think 
the two things need to work together, as Adela alluded to. We need to be working, we need to be pulling the social and the environmental parts of this work together because environmental impacts also have negative social impacts and make people more vulnerable to exploitative practices as well. Um, but I think it's got to be good for workers and it's got to be good for business as well. I think that's what, for me, what ESG means. Jasmine, what, what should ESG mean to people who are vulnerable to modern slavery? How should maybe, how should corporate efforts impact them? Right, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, we want to prevent slavery, right? Um, you know, the, the global pandemic has meant that more and more people are in informal, insecure work and are, are, are vulnerable to slavery, but we want to prevent it. And I think when we're talking about um, a corporate, and I think, you know, what ESG means is it means a corporate that is taking its responsibility to people and planet seriously that is seeking to right in the heart of its business model and in its policies and practice, making sure that they aren't exploiting either people or, or, or planet. So when we look, for example, at what that could look like when it goes wrong, it's the kind of business model that, you know, buys up huge amounts of um, yeah, I mean, the, the class and the classic examples, I guess, are from the, the textiles industry that buy up huge amounts of um, uh, textiles from one or two particular factories means that that textile factory is dependent upon one or two, you know, buyers of its products um, works to drive those prices down in a way that is unsustainable, you know, then the pandemic hits. And all of a sudden, you know, some of those suppliers are saying, well, our business model, you know, doesn't work now because those, those factories are having to put their prices up or they can't get the, 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 the supplies in quickly enough. So it pulls the um, order from that factory and you're left with a factory, let's say in Bangladesh, you know, and there are lots of examples of this happening. Um, you're left with a factory in Bangladesh where all of the workers have to all be laid off. You know, they then happen to be migrant workers. And because they're migrant workers, they're thrown out of the country because they don't have, um, you know, papers to stay if they don't have a job, for example. And so then they're having to trek across land to get home and lo and behold, the borders are shut because you're in the middle of a global pandemic. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about ESG, we're talking about, yes, laws in place and, you know, Yes, making sure that all of that happens, but the the laws have to, you know, be be sort of consistent and challenging enough to get to the root of some of these these kind of practices that effectively create insecurity. So we're looking at a world really where business is done in a way that is good for people and for, for Planet. Um, and I'll let, I'll let Fran talk, talk a little bit about that nexus between slavery and climate change and what we're, what we're learning about that. But in short, it's, it's business being done in a way, a way that is sustainable, full stop, so that when a pandemic hits, it's not the most marginalized that are, are devastated, but actually the, the systems work in a way that's, that's sustainable. 
Thanks. Um, Fran, perhaps you could yeah, just follow on from that and then we could ask Anna-Marie to follow on from a business perspective. Yes, thank you. So um, uh, anti-slavery has been working on the nexus between climate change and modern slavery just since the beginning of this year. So it's still a relatively new area for us, but we were lucky enough to have a fellow from um, Dublin City University who did some research for us at the very outset. And he came up with this model, which basically kind of explains the vicious circle which climate change contributes to, which is creating vulnerability. Um, so essentially he, he, he took it from the standpoint of climate change, which is creating economic and environmental vulnerabilities because um, things like desertification or sea level rise or extreme weather events and make it impossible for normal business or normal life to continue to carry on. And so that's driving people into deeper poverty and exclusion and marginalization. And that's increasingly millions of people falling into that situation. And when people are vulnerable um, or more marginalized than they already were, they can then be prey to things like debt bondage and um, sexual, sexual exploitation and slavery. Um, and then the final component of this is that these people who are put in extreme forms of exploitation also get employed in businesses that are environmentally degrading, like um, deforestation, for example, or intensive fishing, um, or the brick kiln industry. Um, so um, deforestation obviously speaks for itself. It, um, it's kind of the decimation of forests, which are important carbon sinks in relation to the environment. Um, intensive fishing is the is reducing fish stocks. Um, and there's a lot of people in slave labor in the fishing industry. Um, and the brick kilns, um, which is um, an industry which is across India, Bangladesh, and um, Asia in particular, um, they use extremely environmentally polluting um, mechanisms to burn their, their fires to create bricks, which causes a great deal of pollution as well as uh, CO2 emissions. So it has a really extremely negative environmental consequence whilst also using uh, forced labour. Um, so that's the kind of vicious circle that Chris developed. And then he has also kind of a way that that might be redressed by addressing climate change, supporting people's um, their social safety nets, making sure that they have decent employment and um, removing people from slavery. So. Fran, thank you. I just wondered actually, just for our audience, I mean, I've read the IIED report and in fact, I think I, I jumped into your webinar when it was launched. So I heard those sort of case studies. So perhaps, could you perhaps share, there was a case study of somebody in India, it was about how um, far, farmers have been migrated due to climate change and mm. ended up going to work yeah. in a kiln and maybe explain what that involves and, and what why that's slavery and what, what is bonded slavery. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so um, in our recent report that we've done with IIED, we did uh, some work with partners in particularly in Bangladesh and Ghana. Um, and 
in both of those two countries, we found that there was quite a significant correlation between climate change and vulnerability to modern slavery. So if you take the case of Bangladesh, um, and most of you will be aware that it's, an, it's a country that's built on a delta, so it's very vulnerable to flooding. And um, in recent times, sea level rise has caused the salination of land, which was used to be paddy fields for growing rice, um, as well as other farming um, methods. And so this kind of salination of a lot of land, coupled with other environmental problems that Bangladesh suffers. So also there's the existence of drought as well as um, heavy flooding in some parts of the country, um, landslides and things. Um, it means that people's livelihoods are no longer viable where they originally lived. So they might have been um, rice farmers or fisher folk, but that's no longer possible because their lands have been destroyed by the impact of climate change. Um, so it means that a lot of people migrate and quite often it's principally the men who will migrate first, um, looking for work maybe across the border in India, um, but then they leave their families vulnerable. So the women and children are then in an extremely vulnerable position with very little income and they become quite vulnerable to exploitation. So it's quite, uh, in Bangladesh, there are some case studies of where um, women in particular have been, um, ended up vulnerable to being trafficked into domestic servitude and sexual exploitation. Um, and also um, young uh, children as well. Um, and that will, that will be cross border. So um, into, um, they, get, they, they go to work in places like the United Arab Emirates, for example. Um, and it can be very difficult for them to find their way back again. Um, so, um, and sometimes this kind of migration ends up being really quite vulnerable is seasonal as well. So sometimes they will be at home while, while they can make a living in their normal um, place of, of origin, but then they might have to migrate and then they become vulnerable. Um, and, and similarly in Ghana, um, the, um, the impact of desertification in Ghana has been quite significant. And again, it's driven people to seek work in the cities. And um, so massive migration from original um, agricultural lands to cities. And um, there were some cases, particularly of women who were moved, who moved to the cities and they fell into this type of modern slavery called debt bondage, which I referred to before. Um, and debt bondage is where a person um, it becomes, uh, so, so they're basically looked after by an individual um, who they then become indebted to. So in this particular case, um, many women migrate to the city and they become headquarters with the, the people who carry goods on their heads. Um, and the person who looks after them when they first arrive will provide them with the pan that they carry on their heads um, to carry the goods around for people. Um, and they can never afford to pay back the cost of that pan. So no matter, so that from the very outset, the moment they receive that pan, 
they're in a situation of debt bondage because they can't, they never get paid enough to pay that person back. Um, and that person effectively becomes a, a, a slave owner. Um, and so um, in, in Ghana, we're working with some partners who specifically supporting women who've ended up in this situation. And they, they speak specifically about how it was climate change that was the, the tipping point that made them vulnerable before they were probably um, relatively vulnerable anyway, but climate change was the tipping point. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful context. Um, so Anna-Marie, sorry, um, going from very granular level to kind of what you talk about with your clients and you know how they respond and what the kind of issues that they're thinking about are and how that kind of relates to what we are talking about today and with modern slavery. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, we, we, obviously there are laws around modern slavery. And so there, there's lots of work that we do as a firm with clients on the business side around that. And Ruby Hammond and, and, and that team did a really great job <clears throat> around helping companies figure out their supply chain setting up the kind of diligence that was talked about earlier, figuring out exactly who's doing what, because it's not as, it's not as easy as it, as it might seem. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just the person you've contracted with, it's, it's the person that they've contracted with and the person who's subcontracted to that. And then as you get further and further down that chain is where you start to see, um, I, would, I would imagine more of the exploitation rather than at the front of that chain. And so, um, you know, having a law in place that now gets people thinking about that whole chain has has been has been a huge shift. I think in in the mindset of businesses as they thought about it, because frequently, you know, the business is like, well, I'm you know, I can't control my J, you know, my I can't control my supplier down that chain, and um, I, I I don't necessarily know what they're doing, um, and it's kind of shifted that. And and ESG is an interesting intersection with that because it's it builds in some ways on that mindset, that mindset shift where people, instead of saying in the past, oh, well, I kind of didn't know what was happening down the end, people are being told from an anti-modern slavery, you need to know what's happening down the end. And, and, and you know, now companies, interestingly, when you, when you talk about a company looking at their, you know, kind of from an ESG perspective as themselves, they look at what's called the scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. So when people are making these net zero claims and, and commitments, they are committing to emissions for themselves um, and for what they, you know, kind of how they operate their companies. That's that's one and two. But scope three is actually supply chain. And so that supply chain commitment, I think, is hand in hand with the with what's already there for the the you know anti-modern slavery and and is is um in some ways they 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 um they, they benefit each other right to have both of those analysis because the more questions you're asking and the more information you're getting the more you know about what's happening down that chain and we see that from kind of from the clients and companies perspectives a lot of the fund managers a lot of the money investors around um, the systems are very are starting to get very very focused on what their portfolio companies are doing but portfolio companies and, and general companies that that are very heavily involved in supply chain are also super focused now for reputational reasons 
um, for, for, for fines. And just also as a, as a general um, topic inside of, of their own company from a stakeholder perspective, I mean, all of their employees are asking for greater transparency on this, they're asking for greater commitments around what the company is doing. And I think people are more aware of kind of what, is, what does that look like outside of my own office? How did, how did, that, how did that piece of what I've manufactured get here? And, and where did it come from? And who was on the other end of that? And I think the really interesting bit that people, so, so that's how the kind of the chains are working from a business perspective, but what people haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about and why I think this report is really interesting is it also adds the, the second consideration, which is climate change is actually causing some of these problems, right? It, it, it's creating environments where people are migrating not because they want to, but because they can't survive in where they are at present, right? And, and it's that second, um, it's sort of that causality, which hasn't really come to the fore yet, I think for a lot of businesses, but, but has a huge impact as they commit along these you know, net zero commitments that they're doing. And, and in fact, companies are also committing to a circular economy. So you see that you know, companies, and particularly in the fashion industry are starting to recognize I create a lot of waste for in particular. I, I have an extensive supply chain. How am I dealing with that? Because stakeholders are now saying, I'm actually gonna kind of hold you responsible for where all of your stuff ends up. Mm-hmm. And, and so clients are looking at it from that perspective um, as well. That's really helpful. Um, Jasmine and Fran, have you anything to add? Um, maybe particularly around how social responsibility from our, us and our clients um, can help or, or how it relates and have you seen things shifting recently or are we still got a long way to go? <laughs> well I, I think we've, we've, we've seen things shifting and we've still got a long way to go. I mean <laughs> let, let's put it like that and I think I think from, from our perspective you know the conversations that you have with your clients um, that actually creates the awareness um, that these, these two issues in particular are, are interconnected um, and that actually you, you can have a, 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 a sort of double positive uh, impact if you do the right thing. I think what I would also say is, and I think climate change um, you know, really brings this home, but these, these problems aren't, aren't all over there. Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that here in this country, uh, the sort of unofficial estimate is that there's around about 100,000 people living in, in slavery. So slavery mm-hmm. is right here, right at home. And actually climate change is, is, is kind of here in different ways, but it's also coming here. And I think you know, it's worth just making sure that we make that shift, that this ESG thing isn't some charity that we're, you know, that we're, we're sort of doing because we're sympathetic to, um, you know, people who happen to be being caught up in, in the climate crisis and having these vulnerabilities increased and are ending up in slavery. You know, this, this ESG thing is actually critical to uh, everyone's uh, future, um, you know, planetary survival. And I think, you know, I'd, I basically said, you know, we, we, we do need to sort of shift away from sort of doing this because, you know, we feel bad 
for somebody um, you know, in, in a country, say in Bangladesh, for example, um, and shift actually recognizing that, well, no, actually, that's not charity. They're just on the front line. They're on the front, front line of this, you know, planetary and, and people collapse. And so actually behind the scenes, you know, in boardrooms, we've got to recognize that this isn't about charity. It's about doing business differently. Otherwise, we're all we're all in trouble. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that probably segues to some of our uh, asks around um, the climate conference that's coming up in a few weeks, because, you know, we, we we certainly are raising those those issues and those those concerns in the context of that political debate. But I think from our perspective, we would love to see uh, Ashurst continue those conversations and, and it's small conversations that shift the needle often um, and conversations that say, actually, you can, you can do things differently and, and here's how, so that, it, so that it's not just an overwhelming um, prospect for, for, for people. But business is moving in the right direction, but not fast enough. Um, and I think that's the big, that's the big that's the big thing to, to sell and to say. Uh, and any business that wants to be here in 10, 20 years time does need to get ahead of the curve, uh, not, not be caught behind it. Brilliant, thank you. We're getting some questions. Guys, please do keep asking questions. We'll come to those in a minute. I was just gonna ask Anna-Marie, so as, as Jasmine referred to COP in Glasgow, um, I know that Anna-Marie's uh, got, got a presence there as well. We're going to have a presence there. Uh, what are your hopes, Anna Marie, for for Ashurst and with COP and for beyond? <laughs> wow, big question. Um, no, look, I, I think this COP will be very um, very important. COP, of course, is 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 the coming together of of the countries up in Glasgow um, in, next month to commit or recommit or, or refine their commitments around uh, climate change in particular. And um, I, I think that for this COP, it really is about action. And you've already started to see that. You've seen companies starting to move on that even without governments moving on it. And governments have moved. About 60% of the world's governments have committed to some kind of net zero. The, the real, you know, the, the real, um, the, the real question comes in, how did you commit and to what did you commit and over what timeline did you commit? Uh, you know, questions that we as lawyers love to ask. Um, and, and so, but, um, but I think it's, 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 it's really, in some ways, business has really grabbed this and is running with it at, at pace and not really waiting for governments to, to take a lot of the actions. And so, and you look at huge companies like Unilever, right? Unilever's got presence everywhere. Right, and their supply chains go into everything. You look at Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, I've I've been in the middle of absolutely hours from anywhere that would appear on a map, and and people know Coca-Cola, right? And so the, the supply chains of Coca-Cola are unbelievable. Um, when companies like that decide to take a position and get pressure from stakeholders, continue to take that position, it is where I think you're going to see a lot of this coming out of COP. And I think, you know, ideally, if if there is action combined with, as Jasmine was saying, uh, recognition of what's called climate justice, what, what the, the, this concept that you know the GDP growth of of um, 
industrialized world is, is grown on the back of, of uh, quite a lot of coal consumption. And, and therefore the, the GDP growth of, of countries that are not yet industrialized to that status, what does that grow off the back of in a way that we can uh, we can all continue to live on the planet? That that's a big that's going to be a big question coming out of COP, um, and I think there's going to be a lot of focus on that that just transition aspect of of what people are committing to and how they get there. Yeah, Fran, have you got anything to add in terms of COP and what you'd like to see coming out of that? Um, yeah, just um, I do a few things. Um, I'm, I'm also going to be at COP for a few days, and um, so uh, maybe we can hook up there. It would be great to have a, a conversation. Um, so, I mean, Anna-Marie, you, you mentioned the concept of the just transition, and I think that that's probably the most vital part of the picture from our point of view. Um, so. As you said, the idea of the just transition is making a fair and equitable transition from a carbon intensive future um, to a renewable, sustainable, renewable future, um, but not leaving the people in those industries and those workers behind and making sure that there's sufficient alternative employment, for example, for all of the people who are currently in the mining industries. Uh, or particularly coal mining, um, you know, what is what our government's going to do in order to offer alternative types of employment for those people. Um, and indeed, you know, moving into the renewable en energy industry, um, how are we going to ensure that the renewable energy industry continues to be progressive and um, provides decent work for its workers as well? And there have been some recent evidence of, uh, particularly in um, lithium mining, um, of forced labour being used in those industries that are supporting the renewable energy industry. And so for us, I think it's really important that the renewable energy industry gets it right now from the very beginning and doesn't fall into this trap of using exploitative labour practices, because we're depending on the renewable energy industry for the, uh, the future of our planet, you know, and it can't be it can't be dealing in that way. So that's something that we, we want to pick up and run with and make sure that, um, you know, that's kind of responded to in terms of legislation and corporate social responsibility going forwards. Um, so that's kind of probably our main ask around COP. Um, there are a couple of other things um, as well that we're quite keen to get some recognition for. So I think, firstly, it's around this issue of climate-induced migration. So um, we su we're supporting and trying to promote the fact that there is a significant issue here where hundreds of millions of people are vulnerable to being forcibly displaced by climate change. And amongst those are a significant number of people who may fall vulnerable to modern slavery because of it. Um, and so we're trying to elevate that position and we want governments to respond by putting in social safety nets for people and to do some pre-planning for migration because a lot of the um, uh, climate impacts that we foresee, I mean, it's, it's a lot of them are pretty obvious or they might be slow onset like desertification or they might be in countries where there's significant extreme weather events like cyclones but we know that now and, and we know it's going to impact on people so we need national planning that responds to the needs of 
people who are going to be forced to migrate and who might fall into modern slavery as well. <clears throat> and that includes things like providing decent work, but also education and healthcare and other services that people need to survive. Um, so I guess those, those are probably the two main things. And um, we're pitching for climate finance to respond to the specific challenges of, uh, of climate-induced migration. Thanks, Fran. And actually, I've just um, one of the questions that have come in is really relevant to what you've just said. Uh, it's a question for ASI. Have you seen any positive examples of reactions by policymakers uh, or otherwise toward putting safety nets in place to protect vulnerable communities and climate change? We hear we hear all the negatives. But have you have you got yeah? Have you come across some good policymakers, a good government, people who are trying to put in a safety net? Yeah, I mean, there, there are. Um, I mean, so all governments um, have to, they have to create what are called nationally determined contributions. So that's their plan that will help them respond to the climate crisis and also help them cut their carbon emissions. But obviously, you know, if you're Bangladesh, your carbon emissions are not going to be as great as you will be if you're in the UK. Um, so the emphasis on most countries, or in the developing world in particular, is on adaptation, which is about helping communities to respond to the impact of climate change. So a huge amount of it is being done in countries to help people find alternative livelihoods, um, use what they've got, but use it differently. Um, and also, you know, providing those social safety nets that I talked about in terms of things like education and, and housing and things like that. Um, and in one in one particular case that I that always strikes me as so incredible is that Vanuatu is a atoll, and the sea level it's just it, basically the atoll is going underwater because of sea level rise. It isn't going to exist at some point fairly soon. And the government of Vanuatu has actually bought land in, in New Zealand to relocate its population when the time comes. So, you know, there's those types of forward thinking. Um, you know, it's pretty extreme. You wouldn't want that to have to happen, but there is a lot of preparation and thinking that governments and, and the international community is doing. That's really encouraging to hear. Wow, <laughs> I had no idea. I'm so cynical. Uh, that's, that's great. Anyone else, Anna Marie, anything to add, or Adela, or Jasmine? No, I, th I think the adaptation question is going to become more and more important, and, and people are going to look at it more and more. I mean, um, er earlier in the conversation, we mentioned the fact that the, uh, Bangladesh is, is is flooding, and, and the rice uh, fields are actually s s being flooded by seawater. I mean, that that's a massive thing. That the Mekong Delta has the same problem, and and the projections of what that would look like kind of 15 years ago on, on, the, on the base case um, are radically changed to those projections now because of the speed at which everything continues to be kind of building up. And so, so um, in terms of adaptation, you know, there are various universities out trying to figure out how do you grow rice in saltwater because it's such a massive staple um, grain for people, particularly across uh, across Asia, and Asia's at the, at the front line of feeling the impacts of seawater uh, rises. And, and and people haven't really kind of 
put those things all together in their mind yet in, in a way that says, oh, well, this is this is really coming down the pike and we've got to start taking actions now because you, it's not like you wake up one day and decide to, to re-engineer rice kernels so they don't grow in seawater. It, it takes a little time to, to figure that one out. Um, but people have started working on things like that in an adaptation perspective, which I think they, they weren't doing before. And that of course enables people to stay where, living where they are and not have to migrate which then you know is a solution to part of the problem of me leaving wherever I live now because I have to because I can't stay where I am. Um, has anyone got any other questions? So we're coming to the end of our webinar so we've got a little slot for questions now otherwise I'll just keep asking questions and that's that's terrible for the panel. Somebody's coming to the chat. It's like a long question. Oh crikey. <laughs> Right, who wants to take this? Oh my goodness. Thank you for this fantastic discussion. Um, climate change is quite overwhelming. How long do you think it will take business across different sectors to actually take on an active role to promote good ESG practices rather than being a tick box exercise? There's soft law frameworks and finance with the equator principles that the extent that business are actually following the core of their business structure is questionable. Um, mm -hmm. Then you can also have fast fashion in which major impact of climate change and also exploiting women and young mm -hmm. children are at the heart of this globally. So how do we also hold these businesses accountable? Mm -hmm. Ooh, who wants to go for that? Um, <laughs> why don't we go Anna Marie first, Jasmine second, to answer that same question. Sure. <laughs> Um, look, I think I think businesses are already starting to be held to account. I, I think you know if you had had this conversation five years ago, you were in a different place than having that conversation now. And I, I think you really have seen a number of movements. Um, not you know things like the senior manager regime in the UK, where there's now in all the banks is required by law that there be a senior manager who puts their name down and says that they're responsible for addressing the risks that the bank has, has, has faced. And when you start to get personal accountability like that into organizations, you, you do shift the dial. And I, I think you, you have seen this conversation move from, you know, oh, let's all put on a green t-shirt and hug a tree and put that picture on our annual report to actually, this is, this is a massive business risk that I need to address because my plans, you know, in a, in a three, five and 10 year structure look different. And you see the, the money moving and, and not that I'm a little bit biased because, you know, I do finance, but when the money moves, you see businesses react. And so when the money stops flowing to different areas and you cannot refinance projects, those projects stop because they can't get refinanced and therefore no one will buy them because they won't operate on an un unfinanced basis. There are very few companies in the world that, that operate without any kind of credit facilities, right? And so when you see investors saying, I, I have the following requests for you, I wanna know the answers on these questions. Um, I think you do start to see shifts. I, I'm not saying that everything is being done for all the right reasons, believe me. And, and, and there's, there's, there's plenty of, of, of stuff going on but i do think that that movement of of where the cash gets invested will be equally important to regulation because it it will it will move faster and react to markets faster than the regulation will be able to be put in place 
I'd agree with that. I think you know it's a combination of many things, but I do think where the where the finance goes and and how it you know how that how that flows is 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 of critical importance. Um, one of the initiatives that we're working on um, with a partner in insurance with um, Fidelis Insurance is on a marine cargo clause that um, prohibits uh, uh, modern slavery. So you can't really get your goods insured if you you know haven't done the right um, due diligence and and sort of beginning to kind of move those kind of initiatives um, you know so that if you are shipping goods and you can't prove that you've done your due diligence you end up not getting a payout if something goes wrong with the cargo at sea and, and it, it sinks or whatever those kind of um, you know cross-sector uh, levers need to be pulled alongside the, the legislation. And I think from my perspective, you know, we work with phenomenal um, businesses that do want to do good and do right. And, you know, we see it partly as our job to not leave them at a competitive disadvantage, but to get the right legislation in place that, you know, not only holds them to account, but holds others to account. But I think there's also a kind of public awareness piece around modern slavery um, that that is not obviously as advanced as as the climate change risks, and so I think there is a reputational understanding when it comes to climate change that everybody's going to come down on on businesses that are um, not doing right when it comes to climate change. But I think when it comes to modern slavery, there's still a sort of an ability of the public to kind of put it in a box over there um, overseas and so the reputational risk of having products tainted by slavery isn't as great as as yet I, I think and that's certainly something that you know we need everybody um you know in in Ashurst to to start talking about yeah. you know and to have those conversations with your colleagues have those conversations with your families so that people start to to make those those connections because, um, you know, in a sense, at the moment, there's an ability of business that, that is, is sort of flawed in its model and, and is tainted by slavery to kind of brush it under the carpet um, mm. when, a, when a kind of lawsuit comes and to, and to kind of spend money on, on, on keeping it in the closet, as it were. Mm. So actually putting these two together and understanding um, how climate change and modern slavery both um, need that drive from the general public to be making um, business do what is right, I think is also also really critically important. Um, and I think that's probably one of the one of the, partly an answer to the to the second question here around yeah. the thoughts on the, the rising climate change anxiety and its impact on younger generations. I mean, from anti-slavery's perspective, we want every young person to to feel empowered, to feel a part of the change. We know that obviously the huge impact um, that, that will happen if we don't keep to, to 1.5 and then that that, you know, grows and grows and grows, the, 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 the sort of higher warming goes. We know that that's causing a, 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 a trauma um, with young people. And I think that, you know, is really, really understandable. But I think what, what we would seek to do is, is keep young people engaged. Um, Get, get the kind of 
you know, listen to young people, understand young people, give platform for young people to uh, be a part of, of, of helping to sort of drive the solutions and recognising where young people are leading, because at the end of the day, I think young people are are leading this debate in many, many ways. And our, our role at anti-slavery is just to, just to kind of make sure those voices are, are heard. Um, I, I wonder, I don't want to put Adela on the spot on this one, but I don't know whether Adela's been doing any thinking about it as probably the youngest the youngest <laughs> person on the panel. Um, but um, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, definitely people that I sort of went to university with and things like that, they are definitely thinking about the environment more and a lot more about climate. I know when I was at university, there was a new, a new society set up all about kind of climate change and environmental law and things like that. So there are definitely people getting behind that movement, thinking about sort of ways to be more sustainable in their own lives and also kind of outside of that too. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. I'm sorry, I'm really going to have to draw this. Over two minutes past. Um, I can't believe we're running, we've run out of time so quickly, but... Um, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody for joining. Um, first of all, of course, our panel, but also for all of the participants and for your fantastic questions. Sorry, we can't go on for more, but you can always email me if you've got any questions and I'll obviously send them to the experts and email you back with the answer. Um, but yeah, visit the link on the internet page to read more about what we've been doing and to find our Modern Slavery Action Plan. And please do come to me if you've got any questions. I'm always happy to talk about this. Um, but thank you so, so much, panel. I know how busy you are, especially the day after Modern Slavery Day, um, Anti-Slavery Day, sorry. And um, yeah, we um, hopefully we'll see each other again before long, but certainly yeah. at COP and certainly this time next year, yeah. we can have another discussion, hopefully and see where we've got to yeah. since since today. And I should say, I should say, I, you know, one of the other things that um, Ashurst has done for us is, is pro bono support. Um, we didn't talk about that at all, but if anybody wants to, um, you know, look at their billable hours and pro bono support, we do put calls to kind of get engaged in that way as well. So. Um, do do feel free to to um, you know pick pick up on that and follow up. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This thirty for net zero thirty episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>